0: Chapter 8 of Operation Terror by Murray Leinster, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Operation Terror, Chapter 8 It was a ticklish job getting the car out of the garage and into the street. Lockley was afraid that starting the motor would make a noise which, in the silence of the town's absolute abandonment, could be heard for a long way. The grinding of the starter, though, lasted only for seconds. It might make men listen, but they could hardly locate it before the motor caught and ran quietly. Also the trailer truck was still in motion and making its own noise. Of course it was probable, posting watchers and listeners here and there to try to find Lockley and Jill. So Lockley backed the car into the street as silently as was possible. He did not turn on the lights. He stopped, headed away from the area in which the truck rumbled. He sent the car forward at a crawl. Then an idea occurred to him and cold chills ran down his spine. It is possible to use a short-wave receiver to pick up the ignition sparks of a car. Normally such sparkings are grounded so the car's own radio will work, but sometimes a radio is out of order. It was characteristic of Lockley's acquired distrust of luck and chance that he thought of so unlikely a disaster. He eased the car into motion, straining his ears for any sign that the truck reacted. Then he moved the car slowly away from the business district. It required enormous self-control to go slowly. While among the lighted streets the urge to flee at top speed was strong, but he clenched his teeth. A car makes much less noise when barely in motion. He made it drift as silently as a wraith under the trees and the street lamps. They got out of town. The last of the street lamps were behind them. There was only starlight ahead and an unknown road with many turns and curves. Sometimes there were road signs, dimly visible as uninformative shapes beside the highway. They warned of curves and other driving hazards, but they could not be read because Lockley drove without lights. He left the car dark because any glare would have been visible to the men of the trailer truck for a very long way. Starlight is not good for fast driving, and when a road passes through a wooded space it is nerve-wracking. Lockley drove with foreboding, every sense alert and every muscle tense. But just after a painful progress through a series of curves with high trees on either side, which he managed by looking up at the sky and staying under the middle of the ribbon of stars he could see, Lockley touched the brake and stopped the car. "'What's the matter?' asked Jill, as he rummaged under the instrument panel. "'I think,' said Lockley, "'that I must have damaged something in that truck. Otherwise they'd have turned their beam on us just to get even.' But maybe they'll be able to make a repair. In any case, there are other beams. Those are probably stationary, and the truck knows where they are and calls by truck radio to have them shut off when it wants to go by. That would work. Using the wildlife truck was really very clever. He wrenched at something. It gave. He pulled out a length of wire and started working on one end of it. If they guess we got a car, he observed, They'll expect us to run into a roadblock beam that would wreck the car and paralyze us. I'm taking a small precaution against that. Here,' he put the wire's end into her hand, "'it's the lead-in from this car's radio antenna. It ought to warn us of beams across the road, as my watch-spring did in the hills. Hold it.' "'I will,' said Jill. "'One more item,' he said. He got out of the car and closed the door quickly. He went to the back. There was the sound of breaking glass. He returned, saying, "'No brake lights will go on now. I'll try to do something about that dome light.' With a sharp blow he shattered it. Now we could be as hard to trail as that wildlife truck was the other night.' He groped as the car got into motion again. "'You mean, it was—oh—' "'Most likely,' agreed Lockley. It was the thing that went out of the park and occupied Maplewood, flinging terror-beams in all directions. Some of the truck's crew would have had footgear to make hoof-prints. They committed a token burglary or two. And there was the illusion of aliens studying these queer creatures, men. They went on at not more than fifteen miles an hour. The car was almost soundless. They heard insects singing in the night. There was a steady, monotonous rumbling, high above, where Air Force planes patrolled outside the park. After a time, Jill said, "'You seem discouraged when you talk to that general.' "'I was,' said Lockley. "'I am. He played it safe, refused to admit that anybody in authority over him could possibly be mistaken. That's sound policy, and I was contradicting the official opinion of his superiors. I've got to find somebody of much lower rank. Or much higher. Maybe." Jill said in a strained voice, "'Stop!' he braked. She said unsteadily, "'Holding the wire, I smell that horrible smell!' He put his hand on the wire's end. He shared the sensation. "'Terror beam across the highway,' he said calmly. Maybe on our account, maybe not but there was a side road a little way back. He backed the car. He'd smashed the backing lights, too. He'd guided himself by starlight. Presently, he swung the wheel and faced the car about. He drove back the way he had come. A mile or so, and there was another hard-surface road branching off. He took it. Half an hour later, Jill said quickly, "'Brakes!' The road was blocked once more by an invisible terror beam into which any car moving at reasonable speed must move before its driver could receive warning. This isn't good, he said coldly. They may have picked some good places to block. We have to go almost at random, just picking roads that head away from the park. I don't know how thoroughly they can cage us in, though. There was a flicker of light in the sky. Lockley jerked his head around. It flashed again. Lightning. The sky was clouding up. "'It's getting worse,' he said in a strained voice. "'I've been taking every turn that ought to lead us away from the park, but I've had to use the stars for direction. I didn't think that soldiers would keep us from getting away from here. I was almost confident. But what will I do without the stars?' He drove on. The clouds piled up, blotting out the heavens. Once Lockley saw a faint glow in the sky and clenched his teeth. He turned away from it at the first opportunity. The glow could be Serena, and he could have been forced back toward it by the windings of the highway he'd followed without lights. Twice, Jill warned him of beams across the highway. Once, driven by his increasing anxiety, his brakes almost failed to stop him in time. When the car did stop, he was aware of faint tinglings on his skin. There were erratic flashings in his eyes, too and a discordant composite of sounds which, by association with past suffering, made him nauseated. Perhaps this extra leakage from the terror-beam was through the metal of the car. When he got out of that terror-beam the sky was three-quarters blacked out, and before he was well away from the spot there was only a tiny patch of stars well down toward the horizon. There were lightning flickers overhead. After a time, he depended on them to show him the road. Then the rain came. The lightning increased. The road twisted and turned. Twice the car veered off onto the road's shoulders, but each time he righted it. As time passed, conditions grew worse. It was urgent that he get as far as possible from Serena, because of the wildlife truck which would seize Jill and himself if its beam generators were repaired and whose occupants could murder them if they weren't. But it was most urgent that he get away beyond the military cordon to find men who would listen to his information and see that use was made of it. Yet, in driving rain and darkness, without car lights and daring to drive only at a crawl, he might be completely turned around. "'I think,' he said at last, "'I'll turn in at the next farm gate the lightning shows us.' I'll try to get the car into a barn so it won't show up at daybreak. We might be heading straight back into the park." He did turn, the next time a lightning flash showed him a turn-off beside a rural free-delivery mailbox. There was a house at the end of a lane. There was a barn. He got out and was soaked instantly, but he explored the open space behind the wide, open doors. He backed the car in. "'So,' he explained to Jill. If we have a chance to move, we won't have to back around first. They sat in the car and looked out at the rain-filled darkness. There was no light anywhere except when lightning glittered on the rain. In such illuminations they made out the farmhouse, dripping floods of water from its eaves. There was a chicken-house, there were fences. They could not see to the gate or the highway through the falling water, but there had been solid woodland where they turned off into the lane. "'We'll wait,' said Lockley distastefully, "'to see if we are in a tight spot in the morning. If we're well away, and I've no real idea where we are, we'll go on. If not, we'll hide till dark and hope for stars to steer by when we go.' Jill said confidently, "'We'll make it. But where to?' "'To any place away from Boulder Lake Park, and where I'm a human being instead of a crackpot civilian.' to where I can explain some things to people who'll listen, if it isn't too late." "'It's not,' said Jill, with as much assurance as before. There was a pause. The rain poured down. Lightning flashed. Thunder roared." "'I didn't know,' said Jill, tentatively, that you believed the invaders, the monsters, had people helping them." "'The overall picture isn't a human one,' he told her but there's a design that shows somebody knows us. For instance, nobody's been killed, at least not publicly. That was arranged by somebody who understood that if there was a massacre, we'd fight to the end of our lives and teach our children to fight after us. She thought it over. You'd be that way, she said presently, but not everybody. Some people will do anything to stay alive, but you wouldn't. The rain made drumming sounds on the barn roof. Lockley said, "'But what's happened isn't altogether what humans would devise. Humans, who planned a conquest, would know they couldn't make a surrender to them. If this was a sort of Pearl Harbor attack by human enemies, and you can guess who it might be, they might as well start killing us on the largest possible scale at the beginning. If monsters with no information about us landed, They might perpetrate some massacres with the entirely foolish idea of cowing us. But there haven't been any massacres. So it's neither a Cold War trick nor an unadvised landing of monsters. There's another angle in it somewhere. Monster-human cooperation is only a guess. I'm not satisfied, but it's the best answer so far. Jill was silent for a long time. Then she said, irrelevantly, "'You must have been a good friend of—of—' "'Vale?' Lockley said. "'No. I knew him, but that's all. He only joined the survey a few months ago. I don't suppose I've talked to him a dozen times, and four of those times he was with you. Why'd you think we were close friends?' "'What you've done for me,' she said in the darkness." He waited for a lightning flash to show him her expression. She was looking at him. "'I didn't do it for Vale,' said Lockley. "'Then why?' "'I'd have done it for anyone,' said Lockley, ungraciously. In a way it was true, of course. But he wouldn't have gone up to the construction camp to make sure that anyone hadn't been left behind. The idea wouldn't have occurred to him.' "'I don't think that's true,' said Jill. He did not answer. If Vale was alive, Jill was engaged to him, although if matters worked out, Lockley would not be such a fool as to play the gentleman and let her marry Vale by default. On the other hand, if Vale was dead, he wouldn't be the kind of fool who tried to win her for himself before she'd faced and recovered from Vale's death. A girl could forgive herself for breaking her engagement to a living man, but not for disloyalty to a dead one. I think," said Lockley, deliberately, that we should change the subject. I will talk about why I went to the lake after you when everything has settled down. I had reasons. I still have them. I will express them, eventually, whether Vale likes it or not. But not now. There was a long silence, while rain fell with heavy drumming noises and the world was only a deep curtain of lightning-lighted droplets of falling water. Thanks," said Jill very quietly. I'm glad. And then they sat in silence while the long hours went by. Eventually they dozed. Lockley was awakened by the ending of the rain. It was then just the beginning of gray dawn. The sky was still filled with clouds. The ground was soaked. There were puddles here and there in the barnyard, and water dripped from the barn's eaves, and from the now vaguely visible house, and from the two or three trees beside it. Lockley opened the door and got out quietly. Jill did not waken. He visited the chicken house, and horrendous squawkings came out of it. He found eggs. He went to the house, stepping gingerly from grass patch to grass patch, avoiding the puddles between them. He found bread, jars of preserves, and cans of food. He inspected the lane. The car's tracks had been washed out." He nodded to himself. He went back to the barn. There was still only dusky half-light. He pulled the doors almost shut behind him, leaving only a four-inch gap to see through. Now the car was safely out of sight, and there was no sign that any living being was near. "'You closed the doors,' said Jill. "'Why?' He said, reluctantly, I'm afraid we're as badly off as we were in the beginning. Unless I'm mistaken, we got turned around in that rainstorm on those twisty roads, and the park begins nearby. This isn't the highway I drove up on to find you, the one where my car's wrecked. This is another one. I don't think we're more than twenty miles from the lake here. And that's something I didn't intend." He began to unload his pockets. I got something for us to eat. We just have to lie low until night and fumble our way out toward the cordon with the stars to guide us." There was silence, save for the lessened dripping of water. Lockley was filled with a sort of baffled impatience with himself. He felt that he'd acted like an idiot in trying to escape the evacuated area by car. But there'd been nothing else to do. Before that, he'd stupidly been unsuspicious, when the wildlife truck came down a highway that he'd known was blocked by a terror beam. And perhaps he'd been a fool to refuse to discuss why he'd gone up to the construction camp to see to her safety when by all the rules of reason it was none of his business. The gray light paled a little. Through the gap between the barn doors he could see past the house. Then he could see the length of the lane and the trees on the far side of the highway. He was laying out the food, when suddenly he froze, listening. The stillness of just before dawn was broken by the distant rumble of an internal combustion engine. It was a familiar kind of rumbling. It drew nearer. Except for the singularly distinct impacts of drippings from leaves and roof to the ground below, it was the only sound in all the world. It became louder. Jill clenched her hands unconsciously. I don't think there are any car tracks at the turnoff where we came in," said Lockley in a level voice. The rain should have washed them out. It's not likely they're looking for us here anyhow. I've only got three bullets left in the pistol. Maybe you'd better go off and hide in the cornfield. Then if things go wrong, they'll believe I left you somewhere. No, said Jill composedly. I'd leave tracks in the plowed ground. They'd find me. Lockley ground his teeth. He got out the pistol he'd taken from the truck driver in the lighted room in Serena. He looked at it grimly. It would be useless, but— Jill came and stood beside him, watching his face. The rumbling of the truck was still nearer and louder. It diminished for a moment, where a curve in the road took the vehicle behind some trees that deadened its voice. But then the sound increased suddenly. It was very loud and frighteningly near. Lockley watched through the gap between the barn doors. He stayed well back lest his face be seen. The trailer truck with the wildlife control markings on it rumbled past. It growled and roared. The noise seemed thunderous. Its wheels splashed as they went through a puddle close by the gate. It went away into the distance. Jill took a deep breath of relief. Lockley made a warning gesture. He listened. The noise went on steadily for what he guessed to be a mile or more. Then they heard it stop. Only by straining his ears could Lockley pick up the sound of an idling motor. Maybe that was imagination. Certainly at any other less silent time he could not possibly have heard it. Jill whispered, "'Do you think?' He gestured for silence again. The distant heavy engine continued to idle. One minute two, three. Then the grinding of gears and the roar of the engine once more. The truck went on. Its sound diminished. It faded away altogether. They got to a place where the road's blocked with a terror beam," said Lockley evenly. They stopped and called by short-wave and the beam was cut off. Then they went past the block-point and, undoubtedly, the beam was turned on again. He debated a decision. "'We'll have breakfast,' he said shortly. "'We'll have to eat the eggs raw, but we need to eat. Then we'll figure things out. It may be that we be sensible to forget about cars and try to get to the cordon on foot, robbing farmhouses of food on the way. There can't be too many—collaborators—and we could keep out of sight.' He opened a jar of preserves. "'But it would be better for you to be traveling by car if tonight's clear and there's starlight to drive by. Jill said, practically, There might be some news. Her hand shook as she put the pocket radio on the hood of the car. Lockley noticed it. He felt, himself, the strain of their long march through the wilderness with danger in every breath they drew. And he was shaken, in a different way, by the proof that humans were cooperating fully with the invading monsters. It was unthinkable that anybody could be a traitor not only to his own country, but to all the human race. He felt incredulous. It couldn't be true. But it obviously was. The radio made noises. Lockley turned it in another direction. There was music. Jill's face worked. She struggled not to show how she felt. The radio said, Special News Bulletin! Special News Bulletin! The Pentagon announces that for the first time there has been practically complete success in duplicating the terror beam used by the space invaders at Boulder Lake. Working around the clock, teams of foreign and American scientists have built a projector of what is an entirely new type of electronic radiation which produces every one of the physiological effects of the alien terror beam. It is low power, so far, and has not produced complete paralysis in experimental animals. "'Volunteers have submitted themselves to it, however, and report that it produces the sensations experienced by members of the military cordon around Boulder Lake. "'A crash program for the development of the projector is already under way. At the same time, a crash program to develop a counter to it is already showing promising results. The authorities are entirely confident that a complete defense against the no longer mysterious weapon will be found.' There is no longer any reason to fear that Earth will be unable to defend itself against the invaders now present on Earth or any reinforcements they may receive. The newscast stopped and a commercial called the attention of listeners to the virtues of an anti-allergy pill. Jill watched Lockley's face. He did not relax. The broadcast resumed. With this full and certain hope of a defense against the invasion weapon," said the announcer, it remained important not to destroy the alien ship if it could be captured for study. The use of atom bombs was, therefore, again postponed. But they would be used if necessary. Meanwhile, against such an emergency, the areas of evacuation would be enlarged. People would be removed from additional territory, so if bombs were used there would be no humans near to be harmed. Another commercial," Lockley turned off the radio. What do you think? asked Jill. I wish they hadn't made that broadcast," said Lockley. If there were only monsters involved and they didn't understand English, it would be all right. But with humans helping them, it sets a deadline. If we're going to counter their weapon, they have to use it before we finish the job. After a moment, he said, bitterly, There was a time, right after the last big war, when we had the bomb and nobody else did. There couldn't be a cold war then. There were years when we could destroy others, and they couldn't have fought back. Now somebody else is in that position. They can destroy us, and we can't do a thing. It'll be that way for a week, maybe two, or even three. It'll be strange if they don't take advantage of their opportunity. Jill tried to eat the food Lockley had laid out. She couldn't. She began to cry, quietly. Lockley swore at himself for telling her the worst, which it was always his instinct to see. He said urgently, Hold it! That's the worst that could happen! But it's not the most likely! She tried to control her tears. We're in a fix, yes, he said insistently. It does look like there may be a flock of other spaceship landings within days. But the monsters don't want to kill people. They want a world with people working for them, not dead. They've proved it. They'll avoid massacres. They won't let the humans who are their allies destroy the people they want alive and useful. Jill clenched her fists. But it would be better to be dead than like that. But wait! protested Lockley. We've duplicated the terror beam. Do you think they'll leave it at that? The men who know how to do it will be scattered to a dozen or a hundred places, so they can't possibly all be found. And they'll keep on secretly working until they've made the beams and a protection against them, and then something more deadly still. We humans can't be conquered. We'll fight to the end of time. But you yourself, said Jill desperately, You said there couldn't be a defense against the beam! You said it!" I was discouraged, he protested. I wasn't thinking straight. Look, with no equipment at all, I found out how to detect the stuff before it was strong enough to paralyze us. You know that. The scientists will have equipment and instruments. And now that they've got the beam, they'll be able to try things. They'll do better than I did. They can try heterodyning the beam, they can try for interference effects, they may find something to reflect it, or they can try refraction." He paused anxiously. She sobbed once. "'But other weapons—there may not be any. And there's bound to be some trick of refraction that'll help. It thins out at the edges now. That's how we got warning of it. It's refracted by ions in the air. That's why it isn't a completely tight beam. Ions in the air act like drops of mist. They refract sunshine and make rainbows after rain. And we got the smell effect first. That proves there's refraction. He watched her face. She swallowed. What he'd said was largely without meaning. Actually, it wasn't even right. The evidence so far was that the nerves of smell were more sensitive than the optic nerves or the auditory nerves, while nerves to bundles of muscle were less sensitive still. But Lockley wasn't concerned with accuracy just now. He wanted to reassure Jill. Then his eyes widened suddenly and he stared past her. He'd been speaking feverishly out of emotion, while a part of his mind stood aside and listened. And that detached part of his mind had heard him say something worth noting. He stood stock-still for seconds, staring blankly. Then he said, very quietly, You made me think, then. I don't know why I didn't before. The terror beam does scatter a little, like a searchlight beam in thin mist. It's scattered by ions, like light by mist droplets. That's right. He stopped, thinking ahead. Jill said challengingly, Go on. Again, what he'd said had little meaning to her, but she could see that he believed it important. Why, a searchlight beam is stopped by a cloud, which is many mist droplets in one place. It's scattered until it simply doesn't penetrate. Lockley suddenly seemed indignant at his own failure to see something that had been so obvious all along. If we could make a cloud of ions, it should stop the terror beam as clouds stop light. We could again he stopped short, and Jill's expression changed. She looked confident again, she even looked proud as she watched Lockley wrestling with his problem, unconsciously snapping his fingers. Vale and I he said jerkily, had electronic base measuring instruments. Some of their elements had to be buried in plastic, because otherwise they ionized the air and leaked current like a short. If I had that instrument now—no, I'd have to take the plastic away, and it couldn't be done without smashing things. What would happen, asked Jill, if you made what you're thinking about? I might, said Lockley. I just possibly might— make a gadget that would create a cloud of ions around the person who carried it, and it might reflect some of the terror-beam and refract the rest so none got through to the man." Jill said hopefully, "'Then tonight we go into a deserted town and steal the things you need,' Lockley interrupted in a relieved voice, "'No. What I need, I think, is a cheese-grater and the pocket radio.' and there should be a cheese grater in the house." He listened at the barn door gap and then went out. Presently he was back. He had not only a cheese grater, but also a nutmeg grater. Both were made of thin sheet metal in which many tiny holes had been punched, so that sharp bits of torn metal stood out to make the grating surface. Lockley knew that sharp points, when charged electrically, make tiny jets of ionized air which will deflect a candle flame. Here there were thousands of such points. He set to work on the car seat, pushing the pistol with its three remaining bullets out of the way. The pistol was reserved for Jill in case of untoward events, when it would be of little or no practical value. He operated on the tiny radio with his pocket knife to establish a circuit which should oscillate when the battery was turned on. There was induction, to raise the voltage at the peaks and troughs of the oscillations. A transistor acted as a valve to make the oscillations repeated surges of current of one sign in the innumerable sharp points of the graders, and there was an effect he did not anticipate. The ion-forming points were of minutely different lengths and patterns, so the radiation inevitably accompanying the ion-clouds was of minutely varying wavelengths. The consequence of using the two graters was, of course, that rather astonishing peaks of energy manifested themselves in ultra-microscopic packages for a considerable distance from the device. But Lockley did not plan that. It happened because of the materials he had to use in lieu of something better. When it was finished, he told Jill, I can only check the ion production here. If it works, it ought to make a lighter flame flicker when near the points. If it does that, I'll go up the road to where the trailer truck stopped. I've a pretty good idea that the road's blocked by a terror beam there." Absorbed, he threw the switch. And instantly there was a racking, deafening explosion. The pistol on the car seat blew itself to bits, smashing the windshield and ripping the cushion open. The three cartridges in its cylinder had exploded simultaneously. Lockley seized a pitchfork. He stood savagely, ready for anything. Powder smoke drifted through the barn. Nothing else happened. After long, tense moments, Lockley said slowly, That could be another weapon the monsters have turned on. It's been imagined. They could be using a broadcast or a beam we haven't suspected, to disarm the troops of the cordon. They could have a detonator beam that sets off explosives at a distance. It's possible. And if that's what they're turning on, they only have to sweep the sky and the bombers aloft will be wiped out." But there were no sounds other than the slowly diminishing drip of water from the barn roof and the house eaves and the few trees in the barnyard. Anyhow, they've ruined our only weapon said Lockley, coldly. It could be a detonation beam setting off the cartridges. That would be a perfect protection against atomic bombs, if the chemical explosion that makes them go off could be triggered from a distance. Clever people, these monsters." Then he said abruptly, "'Come on! It's ten times more necessary for us to get to where somebody can make use of our information!' "'Go where?' asked Jill, shaken once more. We take to the woods until dark," said Lockley, and, meanwhile, I'll check this supposedly promising gadget, though it looks pretty feeble if the monsters have a detonating beam, against the road-blocking beam up yonder. Come on." He stuffed his pockets with food. He led the way. The morning had now arrived. The sun was visible, red at the eastern horizon. "'Walk on the grass,' commanded Lockley. There was no point in leaving footprints though there was no reason to believe the explosion on the car seat had been heard. Lockley indeed considered that if the aliens had just used a previously undisclosed weapon, there would be explosions of greater or lesser violence all over the evacuated territory, and all other areas within its range. There wouldn't be any farmhouses without a shotgun put away somewhere. There would be shotgun shells, too. If the aliens had a detonator beam as well as one that produced the terror beam's effects, then all hope of resistance was probably gone. They crossed to the house and moved alongside it. They went with instinctive furtiveness out of the lane and quickly into the woodland on the farther side. They were soaked almost immediately. Fallen leaves clung to their shoes. Drooping branches smeared them with wetness. Lockley went barely out of sight of the highway, and then trudged doggedly in the direction the wildlife control trailer-truck had taken. He handed Jill the ribbon of bronze that had been the mainspring of his watch. "'We might pick up the beam from the wetness underfoot,' he said, "'but we'll play it safe and use this, too.' They went on for a long way. Lockley fumed. "'I don't like this. We ought to be there. I think—' said Jill. I smell it. I'll try it," said Lockley. He detected the jungle smell and its concomitant revolting odors. He led Jill back. Wait here by this big tree stump. I'll be able to find you and you're safe enough from the beam. He turned away. Jill said pleadingly, Please be careful! A little while ago, he told her gloomily, I felt that I had too much useful information to take any chances with my life, let alone yours. I'm not so sure of my importance now. But I think you still need somebody else around." "'I do,' said Jill. "'And you know it. I'd much rather—' "'I'll be back,' he repeated." He went away, trailing the watch-spring. He was extra cautious now. The smell recurred and grew stronger. He began to feel the first faint of flashes of light in his eyes. It was the symptom which followed the smell when approaching a terror beam. Then a faint, discordant murmur, originating in his own ears. He turned on the device made of two graters and the elements of a pocket radio. The smell ceased. The faint flashes of light stopped. There was no longer a raucous sound. He turned off the ion-producing device. The symptoms returned. He turned it on and off. He took a step forward. He tested again. The cloud of ions from the innumerable jagged points was invisible, but somehow it refracted or reflected, in any case neutralized, the weapon of the beings at Boulder Lake. He went on, and presently he felt the very faintest possible tingling of his skin and heard the barest whisper of a sound, and smelled the jungle reek as something so diluted that he was hardly sure he smelled it. He went on, and those faint sensations ceased. Presently, impatient of his own timorousness, he turned the device off again. He had walked through the terror beam. He started back with the device turned on once more, and at the point where he'd felt the beam's manifestations faintly, he stopped to savor his now seemingly useless triumph. If the monsters had a detonating beam, this meant nothing. Yet it could have meant everything. He paid close attention and distinctly but weakly experienced the effect of the terror beam. Then he didn't. Not at all. The sensations were cut off. He heard Jill cry out, shrilly. He plunged toward the place where he had left her. He raced, he leaped, once he fell and frantically swore at the wet stuff that had caused him to slip. He reached the tree stump, and Jill was not there. He saw the saucer-sized tracks her feet had made on the saturated fallen leaves. They led toward the road. He heard a car door slam and a motor roar. He plunged onward more desperately than before. The motor raced away, and Lockley got out on the highway only in time to see the rear of a brown-painted, military-marked car some three hundred yards away. It swept around a curve of the highway and was gone. It was going through the space where the road was blocked by a terror beam, headed, obviously, for Boulder Lake. What had happened was self-evident. From her place beside the huge stump she'd seen a military car approaching and she and Lockley had been trying to reach the cordon of troops around Boulder Lake. There was no reason to distrust men in uniform or in a military car. She'd run to flag it down. She had. By a coincidence, it was, undoubtedly, where a carload of collaborating humans would have stopped to have the road-blocking beam cut off by their monster allies. She'd approached the stopped car, and something frightened her. She screamed but she'd been pulled into the car, which went on before the beam could come on again to stop it. End of chapter 8